Father, your word says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know him because it, or for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, we sang of our hope, Lord Jesus, of your return. And may that be a hope that uh, we find burning brighter in our hearts every day. And Lord, if that hope um, is dim, help us to take hold of the means of grace. Help us to get into your word. Help us to commune with you in prayer. Help us to seek out fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters um, so that that hope may be fanned into flame and burn brighter because when we are fixing our eyes on that day, um, waiting with eager expectation, Lord, we, we tend to dress ourselves in readiness. Lord, we, uh, we become pure as we look to the coming of him who is pure. Uh, so help us, Lord, to be ever being dressed in readiness, looking for the coming day when our Lord Jesus will bring us to himself and set up his kingdom. Help us to live in the light of that day. And Lord, we thank you for your word that helps us, um, points out areas in our lives that are uh, out of whack in comparison to your word. Um, and it helps us to bring our lives back into line with your word so that we can live in the light of our Lord's coming. And we pray that your spirit would take your word this morning and accomplish that in our hearts. Uh, may he sanctify us as we study his word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and we're looking at the first seven verses. And I'll read those for us while you're turning there. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. This is the beginning of a chapter in which uh, Paul will spend 40 verses speaking to the issue of marriage. Our culture's presentation of marriage is nothing at all like what the Bible presents to us. The message we are getting today from our culture is that marriage means very little. When two people get married today, there's often this unbiblical notion that those two people can continue to lead their own personal lives unencumbered by each other. They spend long periods of time away from each other, and when they are together, the oneness that is supposed to characterize their marriage is missing. That's because their lives are not woven together as a single tapestry. Instead, the husband and his wife are like two weavers, each trying to weave their own tapestry. And when they do happen to come together and try to fit those tapestries together, they find that it doesn't work because they've each been weaving according to their own pattern of design, with their own goals, their own intentions. And they're strangely surprised when things don't match up. And when a couple is doing that, Oftentimes, divorce quickly follows, and it's treated as no big deal because they were never working on a single tapestry to begin with. So they leave each other to keep working on their own personal tapestry. The Bible's presentation of marriage is completely different. 
Genesis 2, 24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's design for marriage is for the husband and the wife to function together as one flesh, to spend the rest of their lives weaving one tapestry together, both of their lives being a thread that is weaved, woven together. And the greatest physical expression of that oneness comes in the marriage bed. And when that physical expression of oneness is willfully denied to a spouse, it is as if one half of the tapestry is trying to tear itself away from the other half. It cannot be done without doing great harm to the unity, the oneness of a marriage. Last week, we looked at chapter 6 and verses 12 through 20, and we saw why the Christian is not free to use his or her body any way they please. First, we saw that your body has eternal significance. Secondly, we saw that your body is a member or a body part of Jesus Christ. And third, we saw that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But our passage this morning shows us that for the married person, there is a fourth reason why you are not free to use your body any way you please. And that reason is this, your body is not simply yours anymore. It belongs to your spouse. Your husband or your wife has a say in how you use your body, particularly when it comes to physical intimacy in the marriage. Your bodies are included in that tapestry of marriage that you are weaving together. Your body is no longer yours to do with as you please. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see three truths that are going to help us understand why physical intimacy in marriage is non-negotiable for the spouse who is physically able to serve the other spouse in that way. It's, it's non-negotiable. First, the first truth that we're going to look at is this. Celibacy is good. Now that seems totally at odds at how I just introduced this message, but we're going to see how each of these truths builds on the other and qualifies the other. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. How does Paul begin? He says, Now concerning the things which you wrote. We find out here that the church in Corinth had written a letter to Paul. And as we continue on through this letter to the Corinthians, we'll find several instances where Paul seems to be responding to what that church had written to him. For example, later on in chapter 7, uh, verse 25, we find this same phrase repeated, now concerning. That same phrase was in verse 1. He says, now concerning virgins. Then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. And lastly, verse 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother. It appears that the Corinthians had written Paul a letter asking him or commenting about these issues, and Paul is responding to these things that they had raised. And the first thing that Paul sets his pen to addressing from their letter regards the topic of celibacy or sexual abstinence and whether or not such a thing has in any place in marriage. He says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That phrase, touch a woman, that's a euphemism. It's a polite way to speak of sexual relations within a marriage. Obviously, if you've been with us as we've been walking through chapters 5 and 6, sexual immorality is a problem for this church, this church in Corinth. I'm not talking about our church. I don't know those details. Paul was needing to exhort this church, you remember in chapter 5, 
he was exhorting this church to disfellowship an unrepentant, sexually immoral man who had his father's wife. And then when we got to chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we saw how Paul was needing to warn these believers that those who do not repent of sexual immorality, among other sins, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, these are lifestyles that these believers were saved out of. And then when we walk through verses 12 through 20, Paul had to recalibrate these believers' thinking about Christian freedom. It was a freedom that they were apparently wrongly applying to this realm of the Christian life, that is, sexual relations. He had to explain to them why sexual immorality, or porneia, was such a dangerous thing to play around with. So clearly, there were some believers in that congregation who were living as if God did not care how they lived, how they used their bodies. But when we come to chapter 7, verse 1, it seems that there were also some in this congregation who had swung the pendulum way clear over to the other side. When we look through the remaining six verses of this uh, passage that we're looking at this morning, it seems from these verses that there were some within the Corinthian congregation who had begun practicing celibacy even though they were married. Or they were at the very least wondering if that was something they should be doing. They might have reasoned this way. If porneia is so dangerous, maybe we should just not have these kinds of relations even with our spouse. Maybe we should suppress our flesh like that. So to say that this Corinthian congregation was a confused congregation is an understatement. They were very confused. There were all sorts of weird viewpoints and perspectives. Their adoption of worldly wisdom and their pride in seeking to outdo one another in knowledge and in giftedness had warped their thinking. It had stolen from, their, from them their ability to reason through things biblically. Such that when we go through this book, it seems that there is very little biblical truth that they seem to have a firm grasp on. So, Paul is trying to undo the snarl in their minds. He's trying to bring clarity to their thinking. And what he does in the first seven verses of chapter 7 is very similar to what he did in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Remember verse 12 he, back in chapter 6, Paul began there by affirming a broad, general principle about Christian freedom. All things are lawful for me, he said in that verse. But then he added necessary qualifications to that principle. He said, all things are lawful for me, but... And then he gave those qualifications... The Corinthians were taking a principle and they were running with it without seeing what else the Bible had to say that might limit those principles. And so Paul is having to limit those principles for them. He says, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He says, yeah, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, Basically, yeah, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but the body is not for sexual immorality. Here in chapter 7, he again takes a broad, general principle and needs to qualify it. It seems that the Corinthians were taking this principle, and they had run off with it without seeing what else God's word had to say about it. So Paul references this broad principle. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He says, yes, that's good. But verses 2 through 6 are his but. But this. So in verse 1, Paul affirms that celibacy is good. But notice, in verse 1, he does not say that it is the only good. Nor does he say that it is good in all circumstances. In chapters 5 and 6 that we've already walked through, Paul has made it extremely clear in which circumstances celibacy is good. 
Celibacy is good and necessary when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to having relations with someone outside of the God-ordained relationship of marriage. That is when abstinence is good. But verses 2 through 6 are the qualifiers. Paul is going to tell us circumstances in which celibacy is not good. And that brings us to our second truth that we find in verses 2 through 6. Celibacy in marriage is not good. Celibacy in marriage is not good. Let's look at verse 2. What's the first word in your verse 2? But. Here is a qualifier to the blanket statement that Paul made in verse 1. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Paul uses another euphemism here. Each man is to have his own wife. Each wife is to have her own husband. That is another euphemism for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. And we've already run into this euphemism. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, there Paul is rebuking the Corinthian congregation for tolerating a man in their midst who has who? A man who has his father's wife. And notice, that is wrong because the woman that that man was having was not his own wife, it was his father's wife. It's similar to John the Baptist rebuking King Herod because, when remember, he said, it is not lawful for you, king, to have who? Your brother's wife. You can't have someone else's wife. You're to have your own wife. That's what Paul says here. Each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And notice that this is a command that Paul is giving. This is a command. But also notice what Paul is commanding. Notice what he is commanding. He's not commanding people here to get married. That's not the issue he's addressing at this point in this chapter. Instead, he is commanding those who already are married to have one another. That is, to have physical intimacy with one another. In other words, in verse 1, Paul was affirming that it was good not to have such relations outside of marriage. But in verse 2, he's saying, inside the bounds of marriage, it is good and necessary for a man to have his own wife and a wife to have her own husband. Before we go to verse 3, I want you to notice the reason that Paul gives for this command, for a man and a wife to have each other, that is, to come together physically. He says, because of sexual immoralities, because of porneia. Remember, God created man and woman, generally speaking, with a natural drive to have physical intimacy with one another, an intimacy that would be expressed in a God-glorifying way in the marriage covenant. Marriage came before the fall, not after. But when man's fall into sin happened, that good gift and design of God got perverted. Men and women still had that natural God-given drive, but they now sought out every opportunity they could to fulfill that drive in a sinful way, in a way outside of the bonds of marriage. And it doesn't take you very long. If you start reading from Genesis 1 through the rest of Genesis, it doesn't take very long before you come across the incidences of sexual immorality. And you'll notice when you keep reading all the way to Revelation that that doesn't go away. That is a constant, overwhelming, reoccurring thing throughout all the pages of Scripture. It was a constant snare to men and women across the ages. And it was no different for the believers in Corinth, and it's no different for us today. Today, that natural drive is just as strong, and the temptations to satisfy that drive in a sinful way are just as prevalent today, if not more so. So in verse 2, Paul is being very 
realistic. Paul understands that when God saves us, he doesn't turn us into angels or eunuchs. That drive doesn't just go away. It remains. That drive to have a physical bond with someone. In most cases, it doesn't disappear when you become a Christian. But God's design is for that drive to be expressed in marriage, nowhere else. And so in verse 2, when he says, listen, husbands, have your wife, wives, have your husband, he's saying that if you try to bottle up that drive in your marriage, you are backing yourself into a corner, and the temptation to engage in satisfying that drive sinfully skyrockets. That temptation becomes far stronger than it needs to be. The temptations of porneia are strong enough without exacerbating the problem by abstaining from having your own wife or from having your own husband. He's saying don't exacerbate the problem. Paul's view of this is not new. I want you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 5. Here we find Solomon exhorting his son to have his own wife. Proverbs 5, verses 1 through 14, he's warning his son, hey, don't go to the harlot. Don't go to the woman on the street. Don't fulfill this drive in a sinful way. And when he comes to verse 15, he instructs his son on the right way to go about doing this. Verse 15, he says, Drink water from your own cistern. He's metaphorically speaking of a wife as a source of water. He says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? He's saying, should you be looking for sources of water way out there or in the streets? Verse 17, let them, that is, the source of your water, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. He's saying, don't you realize that those water sources that you are going out on the streets, don't you realize other men are drinking from those water sources? You should have one that is for you only, not for anybody else. Speaking of his wife. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 18, he says, let your fountain, again, speaking of the man's wife, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Saying the same thing. Son, have your wife. Don't have someone else's. You know, don't uh, abstain from having your own so that you're tempted to have others. That's what Paul is saying here back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. In verse 3, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul continues to elaborate on this. He says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now we read that and we say, boy, that's not very romantic, Paul. Do my duty? You're right, that's not romantic. But we need to realize that chapter 7 is not all that Paul has to say concerning marriage. He's instead addressing very specific issues about marriage that these Corinthian believers need to hear. If you need instruction on the romantic aspect of this element of marriage, go read the Song of Solomon. Sometimes we need the straightforward reminder of what my duty before God is, and that's what the Corinthians needed, and so that's what Paul is telling them. Do your duty, he says. Paul is saying, if you are married, you have the obligation, the responsibility, the duty of fulfilling what is due to your spouse. In verse 3, the words translated fulfill and duty, those are both financial terms. And Paul is using them figuratively here to refer to the marriage relationship to render, it it means financially to render a payment, to pay. Duty, financially, it means to be indebted. You have a financial obligation. 
Paul is applying those terms to marriage. The moment you entered into the marriage covenant with your spouse, you became indebted. You became covenantally obligated to your spouse, sexually speaking. And you'll notice he is addressing both the wife and the husband. And at that day and age, that was quite a countercultural thing to do. The focus, if he was matching his perspective with the rest of his surrounding culture, he would just be saying to the wife, hey, do your duty to your husband. He wouldn't even be addressing the husband, but here he addresses both of them. He says, husband, you too, do your duty to your wife. They're both indebted to one another. And then in verse 4, Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul tells us here that neither spouse is free to withhold his or her own body from the other spouse. And this also implies that neither spouse is free to give his or her body to someone else other than his or her spouse. Again, why is that? Because in marriage, your body is not just yours anymore. Remember Genesis 2:24, they shall become one flesh. When you became married, you gave up your right to make your own decisions regarding your own body because you now share your body with your spouse and your spouse now has authority over your body when it comes to physical intimacy. Paul is saying to these believers, listen, You do not have the right to withhold your body from your spouse. And if you were to turn to the Song of Solomon, you would see that this is not some killer to romance. The bride in the Song of Solomon reveled in the fact that her body belonged to her husband and that his body belonged to her. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, she said, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Chapter 6, verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And in chapter 7, verse 10, she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Now, I want to be very careful to clearly say that this verse in 1 Corinthians, verse 4, it does not give you or your spouse the right to treat one another's body any way you like. You cannot justify abuse using this verse. You also cannot use this verse as an excuse to never deny your own desires. You know, husband, if you come home and your wife has been through the ringer that day, it might not be the best time to exercise your authority over your wife's body. Wife, when your husband comes home and he's been through the ringer that day, it might not be the best time for you to exercise your authority over his body. It's not an excuse to abuse or use one another as a tool. Why not? Turn back to Ephesians 5, which I read earlier. All of our relationships are to be shaped by the gospel, including physical intimacy in the marriage. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 28 to 30. He says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. To abuse your spouse or to use your spouse as a tool for your own gratification is to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ, because the marriage relationship is supposed to be a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. 
to apply 1 Corinthians 7 in that way, to think, oh, I'm glad the pastor's preaching on this verse so I can go home and I can beat my spouse over the head with it, that is to completely miss Paul's point. In these, in these seven verses, Paul is not giving you a tool by which you can manipulate your spouse into giving you more of what you want. No, Paul is pointing the finger at you. And he's saying, are you serving your spouse in the marriage bed? Are you doing your duty? He's not saying, go tell your spouse to do her duty. He's saying, are you doing your duty? He's pointing the finger at each person. He's not telling you to point your finger at the other person. And that is made very clearly in verse 5, that point. Paul there orders each married believer to stop depriving one another. He doesn't say, make your spouse stop depriving you. He says, you, you stop depriving your spouse. You cannot force your spouse to stop withholding sexual relations from you. But you can control yourself as far as the ball's in your court. So if you are the one withholding that from your spouse, Paul says you need to stop. He gives that command, verse 5, stop depriving one another. That word for deprive is used six times in the New Testament. And four out of those six times is translated as defraud, at least in my translation. That's the basic meaning of this word. One Greek lexicon defines it as to take away what rightfully belongs to another. To take away what rightfully belongs to another. To steal, to rob, to defraud. And Paul is applying this word in a figurative way to marriage. So that tells us that if I withhold my spouse's conjugal rights from her, I am, in a sense, committing fraud against her. Do we do that to our spouses? Do we ever use physical intimacy as a bribe by saying, if you do the dishes tonight, I'll give you my body? That's extortion. Do we ever seek to punish? Do we ever seek to punish our spouses by withholding physical intimacy from them? That's fraud. The marriage relationship is supposed to be a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Imagine if Jesus withheld his body from us refusing to sacrifice himself for us until we did something for him. If he did that, we'd all still be lost and headed for hell. Let me take a moment and press on our consciences as husbands a little bit more, because as husbands, we are supposed to lead in the family. We are supposed to be examples to our wives and to our kids who are watching, and they will learn from us how to be a married couple themselves. For our wives, speaking to the husbands, for our wives, physical intimacy often starts outside of the bedroom. It starts with us taking the time to talk with them, to see what's in their hearts and what's on their minds. What are they concerned about? What are they desiring? What are their goals? What are their fears? And a lot of times it involves us lifting a finger to relieve some of the load they may be feeling from having taken care of the kids all day, cooking our meals, cleaning the house. For our wives, oftentimes, us husbands giving our bodies to our wives begins with those things. And so the question for us is, are we doing that for our wives or are we defrauding them? Are we stealing from them? And then we get upset when they don't give themselves to us. Paul goes on, he says, stop depriving one another. 
except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul here implies that a husband's and wife's coming together physically ought to be regular and frequent. But he does not say how regular, and he does not say how frequent. He leaves that up to each couple to decide on their own in accordance with their own needs and desires. But that's an implication of this verse. And that implication comes out loud and clear by way of the exception that Paul gives here. He gives an exception. Circumstances under which it is okay to be celibate for a time. But there's three conditions that he gives. Look at verse 5 to see what those conditions are. He says, except by agreement. It must be mutual agreement, not a one-sided thing. Secondly, agreement for a time. It must be for a limited time. And thirdly, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. For the purpose of devoting yourselves to prayer. Now obviously there are other extreme circumstances where sexual abstinence cannot be helped, such as your spouse going off to war, or you suffering a debilitating injury, or things like that. But those things are providential acts of God that you cannot control. Paul is talking about what you can control. And the exceptions when things are under your control are very limited. Let's go over those conditions again. First, to abstain, it must be by mutual agreement. A husband cannot unilaterally decide for his wife that there will be no sexual relations because he does not have that authority over his own body. The same goes for the wife. She cannot make that decision apart from her husband because she does not have that authority over her body. Second, such abstinence must only be for a time. It must not be a long, drawn-out period of abstinence. And third, it is for the purpose of devoting yourselves to prayer. The reason to not come together should not be a flippant one or a selfish one, but a God-centered and selfless one. Now, why does Paul put these conditions on this exception to not come together? The end of verse 5 says, And come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. For you to single-handedly make the decision to deny physical intimacy to your spouse is to needlessly expose your spouse to strong sexual temptation. Now again, to be clear, if your spouse is depriving you and you stumble into sexual immorality, you cannot point your finger at your spouse and say, well, it's her fault that I did this. Well, it's his fault that I did this. No, you are responsible for your own sin. However, to the spouse who is the one depriving the other, I ask, why would you not seek to protect your spouse as much as, as possible from unnecessary temptation? Even if you do, both of you agree to abstain, it is to be for a limited time. Because again, neither of you is an angel. You are not glorified in heaven yet, and you are not eunuchs. You still have a drive, and the world is still full of temptations. To illustrate this, let's look at fasting. If you fast from food for too long, what will happen to you? You will die because you have to eat at some point. And the same applies here. If you abstain from marital relations too long, the likelihood of you stumbling into sexual immorality goes way up. There's nothing spiritual or God-glorifying about abstaining from that within a marriage for great lengths of time. We are finding here that's just foolish. 
Nowhere in Scripture does God command you to do that. In fact, he's commanding you to do the opposite of that in this chapter. To do this for an extended period of time is legalistic. I want you to listen to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, when he's instructing the Colossians on the necessity of rejecting this worldly philosophy of making up your own rules for the Christian life and allowing others to make those rules up for you. He says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but those things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Willful celibacy in marriage is of no value against fleshly indulgence. In fact, it's a harm. It will not help you down the road of sanctification. Remember, the devil is a lion roaring, seeking someone to devour. And for a a physically capable husband and wife to deprive one another in that way is to hang a sign around your neck that says in big, bold letters, hey, Satan, I'm over here, come eat me. So we get the indication from this verse, verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 7, that the reasons for depriving one another by mutual agreement and for a limited time should be few and far between. Paul seems to indicate that this should only occur in exceptional circumstances because the temptation to commit sexual immorality is a fire that is all too easily lit. All you have to do is go onto the news websites and you'll find instances when a pastor or a worship leader or a prominent Christian has fallen into this particular sin. And how many more stories are like that that you don't read about because they didn't have the platform that those individuals have? It is still dangerous, just as dangerous today as it ever was. Following this exception, Paul says what he says in verse 6. He says, but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul's commentators are admittedly split on this. What does Paul mean by this? What is this referring to? Some think he's pointing way back into the passage. Some think he's pointing ahead to the passage. But the most straightforward interpretation of what Paul is referring to in verse 6 here is that he's referring to what he just said in the second half of verse 5. After all, verse 2, if you look at verse 2, that was not a concession, that was a command. Have your own wife, have your own husband. Verse 3, that was not a concession, that was a command. Fulfill your duty to your wife and to your husband. Verse 5, at the very beginning, that was not a concession, that was a command. Stop depriving one another. The only concession that is here in these verses comes right after that, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So in verse 6, when Paul quickly says, but this I say by way of concession, not by way of command, He seems to be saying, just so I'm clear with you Corinthians, I'm not commanding you to abstain from sexual relations and marriage for the sake of prayer. I'm just conceding that there might be times in your life when that's warranted. So that's that second truth. Celibacy in marriage is not good. And that brings us to our last truth that we see in verse 7. Celibacy is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Paul closes this section by saying, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, 
Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul was single. He might have been married previously. We don't know for sure. But at the time of this writing, Paul was single. Paul had no feelings, no compulsions to get married. For Paul, the drive to be with someone physically was not a raging fire in his bones. It was not something that was going to become an obvious snare to him in his ministries. And he wishes, he says, I wish everybody was just like me in that way. To be sure, if that was the case, there would be a lot less sexual immorality in the world. There would be a lot more Christians who could flood the mission field unencumbered by having to provide for a family or without having to worry about slipping into sin. But Paul recognizes that God does not give every believer the same gift. That's the word he uses. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. That word gift, it appears in chapter 1, verse 7, and it appears in chapter 12 several times. Chapter 12, verse 4, verse 9, verse 28, verse 30, and verse 31. And in each of those other cases, it refers to a supernatural enabling by the Holy Spirit for the sake of glorifying God and building up the body of Christ. And here in chapter 7, Paul seems to use this word in the same way. Paul's contentment with being celibate for the rest of his life was a supernatural gift given to him by God to enable him to spend every waking moment spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. God gave him that gift to enable him to fulfill his ministry as an apostle. But, Paul says, or it stands to reason why he says, I wish everybody was this way, knowing how passionate about the gospel Paul was. But, he says, not everyone has this gift. The Corinthians who were married were not to attempt to become celibate. That was not their gifting. Instead, they were responsible before God to continue to serve their spouses with their bodies. Now, before I close, I just want to acknowledge that this can be a very painful portion of Scripture for many couples to go through. Because you read this, and you may feel like screaming at Paul and say, how in the world can you expect me to give myself physically to a spouse who I hate? My marriage is destroyed. I cannot even bear the thought of being with my spouse in this way. So how can you command me to do this, Paul? Well, if that's the case with you, then there are deeper things in your marriage that you must address so that you can get to the place where you will be able to obey what Paul is saying in this passage. You are not to simply throw up your hands and say, well, I guess this is just how things are going to be. If you are a Christian, that simply is not an option for you. Your marriage is to be a witness to the world of who Jesus Christ is and a testimony to the world about how the church is to act toward him. If you give up on your marriage, it could be that you are giving up on being a Christian, that you are giving up on following Christ. Now, there are extreme circumstances in which it is permitted for a person to walk away from a destroyed marriage as outlined by Jesus and Paul. But if you call yourself a Christian and you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and you believe that he raised you from the dead spiritually, and you believe that he is going to raise your body from the dead, how is it that you refuse to believe that he cannot resurrect a broken marriage? If you don't believe that, do you really believe that Jesus is alive today? If you need help, 
as we all do at times, in becoming the wife or the husband that God wants you to be, then you've got to ask for help. Pastor Barney and his wife, Owen and his wife, myself and my wife, we are eager to help you if you need it. If you are a Christian, God has placed you within the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is here to minister to you. So please, humble yourself and ask for help if you need it. We won't seek to embarrass you. We won't talk down to you. We won't berate you because we are sinners, too. We often need help ourselves. So please, let us open the scriptures with you. Let us walk with you and disciple you and point you to the one who is alive from the dead and who gives his Holy Spirit to you to enable you to be the husband that he wants you to be or to be the wife that he wants you to be. Every resource is available to you to have a marriage that glorifies the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It often speaks to us about things that are not comfortable for us to hear. And this passage is one of those very things. Lord, if there's stony parts in our hearts that need to be broken, may your word, your word that breaks rock, your word that's like fire, may your word do that to those stony parts of our heart even this morning. Lord, we want to be the husbands and the wives that you want us to be, Lord, but we need help. Please help us. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to enable us, to give us the spiritual empowerment to be what you are calling us to be. And we thank you for your word that gives us the instructions to know how to be who we ought to be. We thank you for the gift of prayer that we can cry out to you in prayer. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who paying for our sins and by rising from the dead, he threw open the doors into that throne room and we can come boldly before your throne of grace, to ask for help, to ask for mercy, for grace to help us in our time of need. We thank you for putting us within a body of believers whom you have gifted in certain ways to be able to minister to us when we are struggling. Lord, you have given us everything we need. Help us to use what you have given us, Lord, in becoming uh, the God-glorifying people that you want us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.